My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, your feel-good fiction podcast, sponsored by Pavers. Pop on your favourite pair of slippers, curl up in the comfiest chair, and listen to your favourite authors chat away in My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, landing wherever you are. So come on in and join me, Claire Gill, our bookshop host, as we hear from one of my weekly's favourite authors in our very sparkly Christmas special. Like any good story, there are three parts to our podcast. In the first chapter, we kick off with a short reading from a new version of the Nutcracker tale. The middle chatty chapter is quiz the author with star of screen and page Anton de Beck, followed by book post, our final cosy chapter, with shepherdess Amanda Rowan, talking all things books, Christmas and lots more. Plus, there are all your favourite authors from Series 1, dropping by to tell us about the Christmas past, present and future. Did we mention that this episode is a Christmas special? A festive bumper just for you. We are doing things a little bit different and are joined by not one, but three talented authors, stars of Page and some of Screen as well. Welcome M.A. Kuznia, known as Maria, to the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. Do come in. It's so lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Before we hear you read an extract, let's talk about your book, Midnight in Everwood. Let's take a look at what the blurb says. In the darkness of night, magic awaits and you will never forget what you find here. Maretta longs to be a ballerina, but as Christmas draws nearer, her dancing days are numbered. As the wishes of her family, she will be obliged to marry and take up her place in society in the new year. But when a mysterious new toy maker purchases a neighbouring townhouse, it heralds the arrival of magic and wonder in her life. Although his magic is darker than Marietta could have imagined. Congratulations on your recent success. What a great chart position. And your first dip into adult books, coming from a successful career with your middle grade series, The Ship of Shadows. When I received my copy in August, I just knew I had to have you on the Christmas special. For me, it's a book full of magic and dazzling descriptions. I could have eaten it up. Set in 1906, without any spoilers, what can our readers expect? Oh, thank you so much. Okay, so it's set between 1906 Nottingham and a kind of fantasy reimagining world of the Nutcracker with moose-drawn sleighs and frozen sugar palaces. So it's very festive and very magical, but there's a darker bite to it. It absolutely felt I was snuggled up in these (laughs) cosy sort of nights drawing in and it it just was so magical like you say with all of these descriptions and to me there's nothing more special especially in December than going to see the Nutcracker Ballet. I have fond memories living um, out my mum's sort of childhood dream of sitting in a box at the theatre and watching the ballet with a (laughs) box of chocolates. Where did the idea come from for recreating the Nutcracker? It's such a special story anyway. Oh, I agree with you. Um, I love the Nutcracker Ballet and the idea came to me rather suddenly because I've always loved retellings and reimaginings of fairy tales. I've always been drawn to them. So one day I literally just sat down and thought, oh, 
I wonder if there's any that I could retell. And I immediately thought of the Nutcracker because it combines two of my biggest loves, ballet and Christmas. Um, I love the Nutcracker. Like you said, I try and watch it every year around Christmas if I can. And as soon as I'd had the idea to retell this story, it felt strange that I'd never, that it had never occurred to me before because it just felt such a natural choice for me to tackle in my next novel. I thought it was so clever. And when you think about it, you think, yes, why hasn't this been done before? But your tone is so descriptive, the plot bewitching and the prose really magical. You almost bring in that childhood wonder. But like you say, with that definite adult tone, the darker side, how was it to swap over to that more mature voice? Well, I read very, well, I'm a voracious reader, so I read very widely. So to me, it felt quite natural. I feel like I have a lot of different stories to tell. And I'm very excited that I get to have another avenue in which to tell even more stories. I feel very lucky. So yes, I definitely wanted to pursue writing with a darker edge to this because I feel like The Nutcracker, it's such a sweet story and, um, you know, it's sugary sweet with all the enchantments and the land of sweets and the sugar plum fairy that sometimes it might run the danger of being a little too sickly. So I really wanted to draw out that kind of darker undercurrent so it had a bit more bite to it, something to play off against all the sugariness. (laughs) It definitely worked, definitely. I love the tones of it that you could feel throughout it. It was magical. To me, it was like any good fairy tale. You've got the goods, the sweet bits and the dark bits as well to keep you enthralled. And talking about sweets, obviously we know that the Nutcracker has got the Sugar Plum Fairy and we've got sweets and candy. Did you have a pile of sweets on your desk while you were writing it? Oh, do you know, I got into kind of a vicious cycle with writing this book. Um, I'd be writing all these descriptions of all these, you know, working gingerbread trains on candy cane tracks and chocolate and sugar palaces. So I started eating, you know, a fair bit of chocolate, a little bit of cake, having a snack while I was writing. And then the more it kind of nibbled on chocolate as I was writing the more kind of chocolate made its way into the book and then the more chocolate I would eat and yeah (laughs) I had a great time (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing wrong with having chocolate and sweet things in there and I think you've always got to you've got an excuse haven't you to taste it because you're writing about it so you've got to get the descriptions right so I mean you know any future books where you need somebody to taste and and write descriptions I I think I'm there for you (laughs) absolutely um you've also got some lovely ballet uh technicalities in there and as a mom of someone who um, did ballet I loved reading the descriptions of that ballet technique have you trained in ballet yourself I go to ballet classes every week I have to confess I'm quite terrible at dancing (laughs) ballet Uh, I would like to be good but I think there's something nice in um, not having to be good at something. But I do enjoy it so much. I've always loved ballet, always wanted to dance. So yes, I go to weekly dance classes right here in Nottingham. And in fact, the dance studio that Marietta attends in Midnight and Everwood is based on the real life dance studio I go to my classes in. How brilliant is that? Did you ask your teacher to check over the technicalities at all? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit nervous about her reading it. But 
once it was published, I did give her a copy of my book. Oh, brilliant. And did she have any feedback? Did she love it? Because I mean, what's not to love about it? I haven't found out yet. She went <laughs> She went away with it on holiday to New York. So I haven't managed to ask her yet. So I'm a bit nervous for my next class. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be brilliant feedback. And talking about the Midlands, I was delighted as somebody who was born and bred in the Midlands to see that you set it in Nottingham rather than London. Was this a conscious decision? Oh, yes, absolutely. It was a conscious decision. I love Nottingham. I wasn't born here, but I moved here about five years ago um, when I moved back to the UK after living in Spain. And I just completely fell in love with the city. And I realised it's not one you see often in literature. Like you said, a lot of books tend to be more London-centric. So I thought it would be really refreshing to set a book here. I really enjoyed it. And can I ask you what's next? Will you be continuing writing another adult book or will you go back to your original genre of of younger readers? I would love to carry on writing both as long as I can. I like to think of it as I write adventure books for children and fairy tales for adults. And I couldn't live without either adventures or fairy tales. But I can tell you that my next book for adults is going to be a cross of Swan Lake and The Great Gatsby. (gasps) Oh my gosh, those are like my favourite things. The Great Gatsby is my all-time favourite book and Swan Lake is so beautiful. How do you find these combinations? I mean, they're just truly lovely, really, really beautiful combinations. Oh, thank you so much. I just love the 1920s. It's my favourite historical uh, time period. And I was looking at other ballets that I could kind of retell. And this one is actually my oldest idea. I've had this book idea for over 12 years now. So it feels very surreal to be finally bringing it to life. Oh, well, we're super excited to hear about that and can't wait to read that one as well. But coming back to The Nutcracker, I am going to be sitting there on Christmas Day watching the ballet on television and I know our readers and listeners can hear you read a little bit from an extract of the book in a minute but I want to know where will you be on Christmas Day? What will you be doing? On Christmas Day I will be having a lovely cosy magical day at home with my husband I am a complete child on Christmas Day. I wake up every year at about five o'clock in the morning and go racing into the living room like I'm five years old, but I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. And now, listeners, without further ado, we have a spectacular treat for you all as we hear a reading from Midnight in Everwood, The Perfect Christmas Companion. Chapter one, Reading Corner. Make yourself at home with a comfy chair and a cuppa as Maria reads you an extract from her adult debut book and top Sunday Times bestseller, Midnight in Everwood. As Marietta neared the ice, she discerned that the river swept around a large town. She saw wooden chalets, their sloping roofs dusted with snow, and taller constructions with swirling whipped cream peaks. A town square was crammed with little wooden huts arranged in concentric circles through which more people bustled around a market. Beside that was the beginnings of a great frozen lake. A tall sheer bridge crossed it at a vertiginous point, extending to a palace that belonged in a patisserie window. The palace and lake were wrapped in a cloak of sheer ice cliffs, draped with waterfalls frozen mid-fall glimmering under the starlight like Marietta's sequined worth cape back home. Everything was edged with the encroaching fir trees. 
A rustle sounded from the forest. Marietta stepped onto the ice with a shiver, desperate to lose herself within people and the twisting paths that drew to mind a Bavarian fairy tale of a town. Grappling for purchase in her satin shoes, she effected a gliding motion across the ice until she'd navigated her way over the river and back onto the snow of the opposite bank. When she was younger, she used to spend Christmas on her family country estate up north, where Marietta would pester Frederick until he'd take her skating on their frozen lake. There, the ice had been rough and the wind harsh, filled with teeth and distant bird cries. Here, the ice was smooth and the skaters accomplished, their skates thin and light as wings. A path presented itself, pastel pink and lilac cobblestones. Marietta followed it into the town. As she passed the chalets, she discovered they weren't wooden at all, but frozen gingerbread. Icicles clustered along their slanted eaves. Other little dwellings were circular, with the striped red and white of candy canes. She paused and grazed a wandering hand over the cobblestones, smiling with delight when she smelt marzipan. The path soon widened, pouring into the central circular market. Here, the air itself was sugared, sweet and soft, like inhaling a wisp of lost cloud. Small gingerbread huts perched on the marzipan cobblestones with iced roofs and windows through which wondrous items and confectionery were being sold. Marietta wandered by, her heart full of that childlike wonder that leads young ones to wait Father Christmas's sleigh and stockings filled with sweets and toys by that nocturnal visitor garbed in green. She wished she had never lost her belief in magic, never set it aside when she grew older and it was no longer charming for her to still hold such beliefs. Perhaps then she might have trusted her instincts. One hut offered molten chocolate in peppermint bowls. Another, pale pink sugar mice that squeaked once tasted. Yet another, working gingerbread trains that chugged along candy cane tracks. And then there were the huts that whispered of grander shades of magic, the ones which sold keys in an assortment of shapes and sizes, vowing entry to the world of your choice. Silvered sleigh bells promised to ring the instant someone fell in love with you. Snow globes that revealed the viewer's heart dreams like a window cut into their souls. Marietta frowned and stole closer to examine one when a voice sent her thoughts spiralling. Thanks for that fabulous festive extract. And next up on our Christmas special episode, we have the dazzling Anton de Beck after this short break. We hope you're enjoying My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Whether you're curled up at home in your favourite pair of slippers or listening as you stroll in the perfect pair of comfortable shoes. We're sponsored by Pavers, the family-run shoe company founded by Kathy Paver in 1971. Oh, happy 50th birthday, Pavers. With hundreds of styles available for women and men, Pavers prides himself on having a wide range of sizes available, 1 to 10 for women and 6 to 14 for men, as well as a huge range of widths for each size and style, all so that you can find 
your perfect style. And you can feel good about shopping there too. Pavers is the first major shoe retailer to achieve carbon neutral international certification and has given away more than a million pounds to date through the Pavers Foundation, where employees can apply for grants for their local community. Plus, until the end of August 2022, my weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop listeners can get free delivery. Just quote weekly one that's w-e-e-k-l-y one as in the number one when you order so whether you're tucked up at home out for a walk heading into the office or dressing up for a special occasion find your perfect style at pavers.co.uk that's p-a-v-e-r-s.co.uk now let me top up my tea and then let's get back to the episode Chapter 2. Quiz the Author Today's Quiz the Author is with the lovely Anton de Beck. We're here to talk all things Christmas. Think dancing round the Christmas tree, lights sparkling and glittery baubles shimmering, all those sentimental Christmas memories, not to mention Anton's fabulous new book, which makes the perfect Christmas gift. All-round entertainer, the man with charm and wit aplenty. Welcome, Anton. Thank you very much. I have to say that wherever I go around the UK from this point forward, I'd like you to be the one who introduces me, please. That is the loveliest introduction I've ever had, and I'm very, very grateful. Even I'm quite impressed. (laughs) Do you know what, Anton? It would be a pleasure. Anytime you need me to do an introduction, I'm there. So let's talk about your new book, We'll Meet Again, set in the exclusive Buckingham Hotel, 1939 London, where war is declared and staff fight to keep the glitz and the glamour going. Newlywed Nancy knows that her brave husband, Dancer Raymond, will want to fight for his country and enlist. Oh, what a brilliant premise. I want to know how on earth did you manage to balance the war element, such as whisperings from Dunkirk and keep that glitz of the ballroom in the book? I'm particularly thinking of the passage. The news which had reverberated up and down Buckingham Hall since the Prime Minister's broadcast had settled by evening like snowfall across the hotel's many nooks, niches and hideaways. Those taking cocktails in the candlelight club, where the terrace had been closed for fear of light spilling out, spoke in low whispers. How did you balance these two shades in your writing? Queen Victoria was on the throne uh, at the very beginning of the last century. And then by the time we get to the 50s, we've had two world wars. We've had four monarchs. I mean, the world, we're now not far away from jetting somebody onto the moon. So it is... um, it's a staggering progression, uh, the first part of the last century, in the sort of annals of time. And I find that whole stuff fascinating. And then the dance side of it, really, that's sort of the, it's heyday, really, was that everyone's going out for dancing and et cetera, et cetera. We didn't have television in those days of many, many decades away from television. Um, so it was a, a brilliant time for dancing and the glamour and people dressed for dinner and all that sort of stuff. And, so I, I, 
those are all of my favourite things, really. They sound brilliant. And I, I noticed, really, in terms of the historical parts, it was filled with sort of realism. You said that you spent a lot of time reading books and researching the history to get the war elements on point. There were all sorts of issues when you think about war that are not particularly obvious. You know, you've got the lead uh, Venetian troop dancer, Katrina, um, who was perfect for the winter serenade and winter ball, but politically a worry at the time for being Austrian, her Austrian heritage. How important was it to highlight all of these sort of subtle um, problems that came along into the dance industry during war? Well, it was it wasn't just the dance industry. It was life in general. If you were by association in any way, anything other than uh, British, you were you would have been ostracized if you were had any German connection. No, not, I mean, many sort of I remember reading somewhere that there were uh, uh, some great lecturers at the big universities around uh, in the UK that were um, German and uh, immediately ostracised by the, you know, not by their immediate sort of peers and, and friends, of course, because you, you know the people, but it's by the, the country as a whole. And then and it, and it manifests itself. But then, of course, that's natural in the, in the state that the country would have been in, in a state of war. I mean, that that's sort of normal. You trust no one. Um, and so really trying to get that element, even in a sort of a storyline like one of the dancers, she, she wouldn't have been trusted. She might have been a, sort of as a spy. So you, uh, it's, just from that perspective, you sort of bring that, that realism of what's going on in the world into, into the hotel, into the ballroom, and, and just try and reflect the feelings of the characters. Excellent. And along with those kind of war elements, perhaps the darker side, was a lot of light in the novel. Finding a way to dance and fill the soul at the midnight rooms, for example. There's an extract that says, the band was playing a wild Coleman Hawkins number and in the middle of the floor, Jean and Mathilde were lost in a wild jive, so different, so much more exuberant than the stately dances in their grand ballroom. The character Raymond is a dancer. And when you're writing the dance parts of your novel, I want to know, do you waltz the laptop around the room or your iPad, working out how to put the words of the dance into the moves? And can you be seen doing Cab Calloway's Hep Hep, the jumping jive? I'm just thinking, how does it work? Because I have to sit stationary when I'm working. I do do this moving around. I do work uh, better at these things whilst I'm... Actually, while I'm talking to you, for example, I'm standing up and I'm wandering around chatting to you. So I do mostly everything better when I'm moving around. Um, the sitting down part you know, I struggle with. So, and all these sorts of things are very familiar to me. Of course, those songs and those tunes and, and, and that sort of gay abandon that you have when you dance. But some, again, somebody I once read somewhere that um, the foxtrot, uh, we always think of the waltz as being the oldest dance and everybody dancing the waltz. But in actual fact, the foxtrot was danced much more in the early part of the war because especially in the the RAF uh, sort of world of the RAF because you the death rate was pretty high i mean you you have to go some to be a to survive war as an RAF pilot and they would dance the foxtrot because the dance the foxtrot is essentially a walking dance and it's much easier to to dance so you would go to a do uh, grab a partner and you would dance which could be your last dance I mean that evening could be it for you off you go tomorrow uh, in uh, in a battle of some description so that could have been your last dance I mean, you don't want to spend time learning to dance learning a dance so you just would 
essentially take somebody into your arms and dance what could possibly be your last dance. And I, that really resonates with me. And then you take it up to the next sort of level of that sort of dance until you drop sort of affair with the, the faster j- dances, like the jive, for example. Um, you know, the dance. somebody once said, dance like there's no tomorrow. Well, for some of these guys and girls, there, there may not be much tomorrow. That's so poignant. It really does send goosebumps up your arms when you think maybe that was their last dance. Back to modern day. And I think what I'm going to do from now on, I'm going to tell my boss that I'm going to be working while moving. I think it's a good way to do. And (laughs) I will blame you, Anton, for this. (laughs) 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 Novel number four, fourth installment of the lives of Raymond, Nancy and all their friends and family in and around the Buckingham Hotel, entitled We'll Meet Again. Does it feel like that? I mean, I know you have a brilliant team around you from your PRs to your editors, your audio editors, your digital even it must make writing a dream how do you find it now on number four and how many books are there to come well I do genuinely love it because I get to um, make stuff up. I love the idea of making up a story around a real event Uh, that comes from reading uh, a particular author and I, I just thought that his premise was brilliant. So I've sort of lifted it from him, really, nicked his idea. All best things in life are stolen um, or borrowed. And um, I, I'm very lucky. I have the most brilliant team uh, around me, a team of people who are like-minded, really, or sort of great energy and great optimism, which are my you know, two really, really important things in my, in my life, really. And um, I'm going to continue doing the stories for as long as, as people want to read them, so uh, for forever, hopefully, because I love the stories. And then, you know, we can just take them on and on and on and on. Um, and the Buckingham Hotel is the star of the piece. So and because of that, when I made that decision, it made life a bit easier for me, really, because then I can have whomever I like wandering through the 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 foyer of this grand hotel what a beautiful setting it is i wish i could go and stay there <laughs> um now it's our christmas special yeah so can you tell us your best christmases ever in the past well they're very traditional actually i love christmas I, you know I, I i'm one of these people who wishes it would snow on christmas day and just cover the ground in snow and fa- and then the snow disappears uh, a day later so I want really lovely, deep, lush snow, beautiful, makes it look like Christmas. And then on Boxing Day, it all sort of moves away. And then on 27th, it's all sunny again. Um, that would be ideal. Won't happen. But um, so I'm very traditional. Family, I've got the, the children, of course. They'll be, they'll be just over four and a half. So they'll be five in March. So this Christmas is going to be so exciting. Um, and so that's really Christmas for me. Christmas trees, decorations, turkey family have the fire on have the christmas movies on have the christmas music on all of that gorgeous love it and if you just snow perfect i agree with you i cannot stand a christmas day when it's sunny it <laughs> it's wrong, just wrong it's not on is it so i'm with you i can't go to australia for christmas yeah exactly it's just not good is it i think we need to do a snow dance for christmas that would maybe make it work <laughs> That'd be my pleasure <laughs> that would be brilliant thank you do you have a Christmas from the past that stays in your mind, a particular one where you just thought, oh, that was just a really memorable one? I remember when I was a child, I got my first bike. I think all children uh, remember that. That was pretty memorable. 
Uh, and it was a surprise as well. We never did the whole, um, we never knew what we were getting for Christmas as, as a child growing up. So presents were literally, you know, you didn't have that thing where, oh, well, I didn't write Christmas lists and all that sort of stuff. It was all, I still don't do it now, actually. So it's all a lovely surprise and it's just gorgeous. Um, last Christmas was pretty fabulous with the children as well. I mean, it's it's sort of children are everything at Christmas. And I, and I you know, when I, I loved it when I was young and now with the young children, uh, with our young children, it's just magic again. I love it. So um, I think this year, though, I'm, I can't wait for this year. I'm doing pantomime this year as well. So this is going to be extraordinary this year. You sound like you're going to be very busy. I mean, mine are nine and 12 now and they still love Christmas. Whereabouts are you doing your panto? We're doing it at Richmond Theatre. Um, it's going to be uh, wonderful. I can't wait. I'm playing Buttons in Cinderella, a traditional one. It's my first panto. Um, a bit nervous about remembering the lines. So I've got to have to get my head down and crack on with the lines. But it's, again, just all adds to the Christmas spirit. I can't wait. You will be amazing. And what a character. That is just Christmas, isn't it? Buttons in Cinderella. That is just so Christmas. And I hope that you have a nice, cosy time with your kids as well. I'm sure you will doing all the magical things like putting the carrots out for the reindeer and the mince pies and so on. I'd love to catch up with you, you know, in 2022 and get you on there. That would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love it as well. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go controversial. We'll do it in person. Absolutely. Let's get it in the diary. Thank you so much, Anton. It's been really, really lovely to have you on today. Thank you very much for having me on. That's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Anton, for those dazzling answers. And remember, if you've got an all-important question to ask one of your favourite authors for a future series, then check out the My Weekly website to find out which big author is coming up next on the podcast. That's www.myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcast. And of course, send those questions in via email to flyingbookshop at myweekly.co.uk. After all those fascinating answers from Anton, you're sure to be wanting to get a copy of We'll Meet Again or Midnight in Everwood by M.A. Kuzner, who read us a brilliant extract at the beginning of the programme. Don't forget, you can swipe down to the episode notes to buy your copy. Thanks for dancing your way into our podcast, Anton. Do shimmer by again. Talking of sparkly Christmases, we've got some brilliant Christmas musings and memories on Christmas for series one authors. We're talking Christmas past, present and future. Let's kick off with Christmas past. We're going to hear from all our series one authors from Anne Cleese, Dorothy Coonson, Sophie Kinsella, Stacey Halls, Kathy Bramley, Heidi Swain, Sarah Morgan and Amanda Owen. Oh, I've had so many lovely Christmases. I think because... We're a big family now. One of my daughters has four children and is about to have another and my other daughter has two. And so quite often the whole family would come here for Christmas and it's just sitting around a big table with the kids and Tim and me and huge amounts of food and just enjoying everybody's company. Probably the one where I was in Australia and I went, ended up being invited to spend some time with a group of people who weren't from Australia. 
I met a woman through work who's South African and she invited me to um, her aunt's house who did live in Australia. But at her aunt, aunt's house, there were so many different people from all over the world who basically like we had no ties to Australia, real ties to Australia. So we all spent Christmas there, which was really nice, actually, because we were all kind of displaced people in this house together. And obviously, Christmas in Australia is really hot. It's not cold at all. And um, so it was quite a weird Christmas being roasting hot, really roasting hot and um, celebrating things with which is traditionally all snow and cold. Do you know, one of the most memorable moments I've had in Christmas actually was related to what I do really, which was getting Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in my stocking when I was quite little. And I woke up in the practically in the middle of the night, you know, you do when you're a child and sort of opened this stocking and found this book. And I started reading it and I just couldn't stop. And so I didn't even unpack the other toys in the stocking. Or I was just absolutely gripped by Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And for me, that defined that Christmas day. And I think that's what first taught me the power of a good story and, and has stayed with me ever since, really. Yeah. Oh, gosh, so many. Um, I guess it would be, we were very close to my grandparents growing up, my mum's mum and dad, and they would always somehow preempt us getting up on Christmas morning and they would be parked on the drive, dressed, ready and waiting for us to um, get up for Christmas morning so they could watch us open our presents. So that is a very fond Christmas memory of just coming down the stairs and seeing their car on the drive through the kind of glass in the doorway and thinking, oh my God, it's Christmas morning and just being so excited. Do you know what I loved last Christmas? Um... It was, it was a scaled back Christmas. It was just the four of us at home, my two daughters, my husband and myself and the dog. And we just had a lovely laid back time. And it was the first time that they've, the girls have helped cook Christmas dinner. So I'm hoping now that that's the start of good things. And, and maybe this year they'll do it all themselves. Who knows? About 10 or 11 years old. And I had a Christmas present that I had coveted for so many months but I never thought I was going to get it in fact I I hadn't even thought about it as a Christmas present because I thought it was so out of my league there wasn't a chance that I would get it um, and my mum and I and my nan had been visiting a pet shop every week and they had cockatiels in baby cockatiels and they were beautiful and I just loved these birds and I just used to stand there and stare at them and I never asked for one because they were so ridiculously expensive um and we went down to my nan and granddad's Christmas morning mum and I used to go and spend every Christmas day with them and they had a bay window with curtains in front and my mum said oh you better go and look behind the bay window I think she was desperate for me to look before I heard anything and I went behind there and there was the biggest bird cage and when I pulled off this big bed sheet that they'd covered up covered it up with there was um there was a cockatiel there was Sammy in a cage waiting for me on Christmas morning and it was the best present ever um, normally I'm quite, it's quite hard for me to think of a favourite book, but at Christmas, actually I would pick a cookery, well it's sort of a cookery book, is Nigel Slater's The Christmas Chronicles. Um, and so it's full of beautiful photographs and lovely um, recipes, but it's also um, so much more than that because it's a real sort of homage to winter really, talking about the season. So I absolutely love that book, that would be my favourite. Oh, oh dear, yes. 
It's, I suppose, my best Christmas memory. It's perhaps my best and my worst. We'd had our house um, renovated. And in the process of this, we'd had to live in a caravan for quite a long time whilst they took the whole front wall of the farmhouse out. Anyway, finally, it was time to go back into the house. The renovation was complete. Everything was put back together. But unfortunately, we had an unwanted visitor that had made itself at home in the house. And it was a rodent and not a small one. It was a rat. Anyway, it moved into the house and we kept trying to catch it, but rats are very, very clever. So we would bait up traps and the terrier would like nose around knowing that there was a sort of rat in the house. But of course, because it's an old house and because there's lots of skirting boards and lots of gaps in the walls and under the doors, it always evaded capture. Sometimes even would see it as it sort of, you know, in the sort of half light before bedtime, you just see a shadow shoot past the door. It was really unnerving. One night, in fact, I actually woke up to hear it playing the piano. It actually ran up the keys on the piano. It was horrible. Anyway, it all culminated on Christmas morning because it would, wouldn't it? I mean, the one day that you really do not want a rat put in an appearance, it's Christmas morning. I'd cooked the turkey I had it on a platter, and it's always a massive turkey because I've got a lot of people to feed because we're greedy. I had this enormous turkey on a platter, and I walked into the stone-built dairy to put it down to cool, and as I walked in, something ran up my leg, and it was the rat, and it ran right up my leg because I had a pair of woolly stocking socks on, and I screamed blue murder because if there's one thing I can't stand, it's rats. But I had the presence of mind, number one, not to drop the turkey, and number two, to kick the door that was behind me and shut it, so at least I knew that the rat was in there. So then I went through and announced that the rat had run up my leg, and Clive was like, are you sure? Yeah, I am sure, because I do know when a rat runs up my leg. Anyway, basically, Christmas Day was spent with the dairy being turned upside down. Every single tin, every single sack of rice... The fridge was moved, you name it. And all I could hear was Clive going, it's not in here, you must have imagined it. As I honestly, there's a rat in there because it ran up my leg. The final, last thing that he did was he got the chest freezer and shifted it and rolled it onto the side. And there in the back, behind a mesh grill where the motor is that's slightly warm, was a pair of eyes looking back at him. It was the rat. Oh my goodness, what a Christmas Day story there from Amanda Owen. But what about Christmas present? What are our authors planning this year? We're going to hear from Anne Cleves, Dorothy Coombson, Kathy Bramley, Heidi Swain and finally Sarah Morgan. My Christmas present is in Whitley Bay in my little house here. And I don't think all the family will be here, but some of them will be. And before they all turn up, I always go for a long walk on the beach to blow away the cobwebs and get me set up for the day. The turkey or the goose or whatever fowl that we're going to be eating is in the arga, bubbling away slowly. And then I'll be ready after my walk for the crowds to descend. 
Oh, well, I don't know, you know. I don't think it's very wise to make plans at the moment because things keep changing. So we're just going to see how it goes. We just want to wait to see how it goes. I mean, yeah, that's my plan to wait and see how it goes with everything, actually, because we haven't really made plans for anything, really, because we don't know what's going to happen next or which way things are going to uh, land. So, I mean, last year we'd all planned to go and visit family and everything, and then we couldn't. So I think we've learned a lesson this year. We're just going to take it as it comes. We haven't made plans yet. I think um, I'm, I'm currently in the middle of a first draft. Well, I'm, I'm the last half of a, a first draft of a new book. So I'm sort of waiting until the 1st of December to really start my Christmas plans. Um, I've got both girls home, me and my husband, dog again. Um, so who knows? I'm not sure who we've got this year, but whatever happens, it'll be very much family. And then I'm going away with my old university friends for New Year, which will be really exciting. I haven't made any plans for Christmas yet. I think it will be a fairly kind of normal Christmas, generally at home um, with the kids. We spend the day at home anyway. So even last year wasn't a different Christmas day for us. So it's, it's generally a very traditional Christmas. We will get up and share breakfast together, open sack presents. Um, big presents are always saved for after lunch. So lunch will be about one o'clock, then we'll settle down with the big presents, um, have a light supper for tea, and that'll be it. That will be the day. It's the same every year, but I think that's why we love it. <laughs> well, yes, plans have been um, a bit up in the air, haven't they, lately? Uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to get family together, but who knows? Uh, I'll certainly be doing all the usual routine of getting a beautiful tree and um, getting ready, and hopefully, hopefully, family will be able to come home. I really hope they will. Oh, well, I think we're all spoilt for choice there. What could we choose? Maybe a mixture of all. And then again, there's my absolute ideal Christmas of the future. Think proper snow, spicy candles with sweet cinnamon, Christmas choir, peace, family all together, cat curled up. An early Christmas morning ride on my favourite horse, good food, board games, cosy company and festive cheer. But what did our authors say would be their best Christmas in the future? Their ideal day? Of course, snuggling up, listening to the My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop on Christmas Day or a walk in your paver's wellies. Let's hear what the author's ideal future Christmas would be. It would be snow. It would be that we would wake up on Christmas morning and we would run outside and somebody would say, look at that. And at that precise, perfect moment, little snowflakes would start falling down and then they'd come really fast. So by the afternoon, the children are like building snowmen and it's the complete fantasy Christmas day. Oh, probably quite a boring answer, but I am very traditional. So I would say we moved house last year. So I would say now the house is kind of taking shape, it'd be nice to have all the family around and a big tree and just a very traditional Christmas dinner, the first one in this house. So hopefully that's something on the cards for next year, perhaps. Do you know the uh, video for Last Christmas by Wham? You know, that that little chalet, that that's my perfect Christmas. Just that, just there, just that, that place with the fire and the snow and the snow snowballs. Perfect. Gosh, that's quite a hard question to answer, I think. my The immediate thought that sprang to mind would be to go away somewhere and not have to do any cooking and not have to do any dishes or, you know, have everything done for me. 
but I don't think I want to change anything. I can't think of anything that I would rather do than have the Christmas that I've already got. Oh, that would be a family gathering somewhere really snowy and beautiful. Yes, I'd go to the Alps or maybe Wyoming. <laughs> and thanks so much to Sophie Kinsella, Stacey Halls, Kathy Bramley, Heidi Swain, and of course, Sarah Morgan for those brilliant ideas for our perfect Christmas of the future. And we couldn't leave out Dr. Hilary Jones. He's on the phone right now to tell us about his favourite Christmases. Hello, this is a Christmas message to Claire and the whole team at My Weekly and all their readers. I wanted to say that uh, probably my favourite Christmas of all time would have been my trip to Lapland uh, with a charity called Northern Lights who take uh, young children with life-limiting conditions um, to visit Santa in his uh, factory with all his elves making toys uh, and uh, giving presents to these kids who've been in hospital having intravenous drips and seeing doctors and being unwell for so long and then finally they're given their freedom to fly to Lapland, the magical snow-covered hills there, and meet Santa, the real Santa in real life. It was a magical, fantastic Christmas time for me and what Christmas is all about. So I think that stays in my memory. Um, to see these children riding on sleds pulled by reindeer and on sleighs pulled by huskies, the looks on their faces, it was truly wonderful. And this year, I'm looking forward to a proper Christmas with my entire family. It's been a couple of years since we've been able to get together like this because of the pandemic. So my 95-year-old mum, the kids, the grandchildren, and we will sit by a log fire and enjoy some good food and some drink and exchange presents. And of course, we'll spare a thought for others less fortunate than ourselves at this time. And then I think in the future, I look forward to, I think I'd really like to do the same thing, but maybe in an alpine chalet somewhere in the mountains, the Alps with deep snow. So we go for walks in the morning and sit by the fire later on, looking at people skiing and enjoying winter sports. And my favorite book of all time for Christmas would be Silent Night, uh, the story of the Christmas truce in World War One by Stanley Weintraub, a lovely, heartwarming book. So with those thoughts, I'd just like to wish uh, all uh, my weekly viewers a very happy Christmas. We look forward to a much happier and healthier new year. My, my, my love and blessings go to all of you. And, um, and thank you for uh, having me on to, to convey this message. Happy Christmas. Oh, thanks, Dr. Hilary Jones. What lovely memories, too. Of course, big family meals, snow and fresh air are just part and parcel of living on a 2,000-acre hill farm in North Yorkshire for shepherdess Amanda Owen and her family, who for years have shared their everyday life in the long-running Channel 5 series, Our Yorkshire Farm. So let's catch up with the lovely Amanda Owen and talk about her brand new book. It may have been a bumpy ride, but we've managed to land the magical flying bookshop next to Amanda's new gorgeous pedigree Clydesdale. And of course, Tony the Pony. The views are breathtaking, our cheeks are rosy, and we can hear the sounds of farm life and kids playing. I'm hoping for a lovely canter too. 
This is my Christmas heaven, Amanda. Welcome to the My Weekly Magical Flying Bookshop. We're so glad we landed here. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I know I'm quite difficult to catch up with. I've kind of here, there and everywhere, but that kind of sort of epitomizes um, me and life here on the farm, really. Oh, it's brilliant to have you here. And I have to say the kids and me were in happy tears when we watched the emotional black and white montage of your family over the years, your children growing up and the moment when your youngest started school. And we've been so involved as viewers that it felt an absolute privilege to be able to share your family's life story over the years. So your new book has come at a very fitting time, actually, entitled Celebrating the Seasons, Farming Family and Delicious Recipes to share. It was top of my Christmas list. It's so different to your previous four best-selling books. Pender's part photography, part recipe and part memoir. And if you weren't talented enough, what I found incredible is that the 200 or so photos in there were taken by you. How lovely was it to record the full year in season, the snapshots, almost like journaling? Oh, it was um, the Celebrating the Seasons book is a kind of, I suppose, the book that I'd always wanted to put together. And I mean, it's my fifth book, so it's taken a little bit to get there. But I guess it was, in a way, it was paying homage to a book that inspired me all those years ago, a book called Hill Shepherd, that was pretty much a photographic um, coffee table style book that um showed the lives of shepherds going about their business in the Yorkshire Dales in the Lake District. And they sometimes say that a picture can tell a thousand words. And that book for me, it just, well, it set me off on my journey to become a shepherdess. So I know the power that a picture, an image can sort of give to the reader. So, I mean, I've always been keen on photography. I take pictures with me wherever I go and either I'm behind the lens or if I'm in a picture, it's the children that took the picture. So I've got this catalogue of 100,000 pictures. I've used them on social media. I've even used them doing presentations. And people had always said to me, you know, your pictures are so beautiful that you should put them together into a book. So finally got round to it. There was 100,000 in my back catalogue to choose from. So that was quite difficult, deciding which ones were actually going to make the book. And um, I guess, I mean, I don't call myself necessarily a photographer, just like I don't call myself an author. I'm just literally a scribbler and a snap taker. But I work with all the things that people say you shouldn't work with, children and animals, and of course, all in that glorious backdrop that is Yorkshire. So there's plenty of opportunity, whichever way I look, to take a photograph. So those incongruous pictures of children in tutus and wellies out feeding the sheep and in the snow, I just think it's just that little bit different. And just to see how bright and beautiful, I wanted it to be a book that was sort of uplifting, And also a book that answered some of the questions that people would frequently ask me, like, how on earth do you cater for a family your size? So throw in a few recipes, very forgiving recipes, and also sort of follow the year through the seasons, which, you know, for us is so intrinsic to to what we do. And especially after this last 18 months during the pandemic, 
um, people maybe have become a bit more aware of the surroundings, aware of seasonality and sort of what's going on in the countryside through the window. So, so that's what it's all about, really. I think it's definitely that feeling of uplifting and making you be present, you know, making you take a look of what's around you. And I know farmers who are friends of ours were also suitably impressed and that idea of following the seasons, which, you know, pass us by sometimes. So it's nice to just stop a moment and pause. And I want to talk about your recipes because we are definitely trying that mushroom uh, recipe. We're, we're so mad about mushrooms in our house and I like the idea of coming together and eating as a unit as a family I want to know was it difficult to pick out these favorite recipes and these memoirs because there must have been so many I know you had sort of difficulty picking out the photographs but how did you decide with the recipes and the memoirs what to include oh well we kept whittling um, the recipes down to a short list And it was incredibly difficult to decide on the photographs and the recipes. But the bottom line was, with each recipe that I put in, I kind of wanted there to be, I suppose, a little food story that went with it. And it was also important that there were recipes that are achievable by anybody and everybody. I mean, with the mushroom recipe, the one that you've highlighted, of course, being privileged to live where we do, we have sort of field mushrooms we have the ability to go out at a certain time of year in the autumn and actually be able to forage and pick our own mushrooms and it's really clear and obvious that that is not something that everybody has the ability to do so it was kind of how I incorporate a recipe that could could be adapted I suppose it doesn't matter whether you've got access to um to wild mushrooms or whether you're just heading off to the supermarket. It was kind of that sort of looking at the idea of it being what's in season at what time. Because another important factor with with being sort of part of a big family is, of course, the purse strings. And it's quite pertinent, I think, that at this time particularly, we're looking at cutting down on food waste, we're looking at food miles, we're looking at provenance. We're looking at really, I don't know, sort of, um, sort of more of, of a holistic way, I suppose, of, of cooking, sort of closing that loop, closing the circle. You know, as you head into the winter months, you're looking more for recipes that are sort of hearty and filling during the cold months and heading through to the spring and you're looking outside and seeing what's growing what's in season because I mean it doesn't come as any surprise that if you eat what in se- what's in season not only is it cheaper to buy it also tastes better so it's quite a, a simple a very simple idea really it's kind of going back to basics I suppose I feel like maybe we've been spoilt over the past few years, having everything at our fingertips all year round. And it's that kind of idea of um, of sort of going going backwards a little bit and, and kind of using what you've got and using it wisely. I like that idea. And it's that sense of sustainability, mm. I think, as well, isn't it? And, and using what's on your doorstep, um, you know, not getting those sort of um, mileage for the food. Mm. And talking of cooking, I want to know, um, do you have a favourite recipe in the book and why? Um, and what will you be cooking this Christmas? Because I was really interested in the Christmas cockerel broth and the Stilton dumplings, because that's not something I'd actually thought of to do. Yeah, you've got everything there, haven't you? Absolutely. I think um, 
Well, this Christmas feels very different to last Christmas because, of course, hopefully, fingers crossed, if everything goes to plan, it'll certainly be more of a normal Christmas. You know, there'll be more people around. Last year, of course, it was lockdown Christmas and we, you know, were very much curtailed in how many people you could have around your table. So, once again, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm really, really resisting the urge to do that thing that we're all so guilty of when it comes up to Christmas. There is sort of like weird thing that hits you that it's like, okay, it's Christmas. We're going to fill the fridge. We're going to fill the dairy with loads of Christmas food that actually we don't really like, but we're just getting it because it's Christmas and we'll fish it out of there in a week or so and wonder what on earth to do with it because we bought that camembert that we were going to bake that we never do you know that kind of so it's kind of like having the nerve I suppose to 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 kind of not follow not follow the trend decide what you actually like the children absolutely adore turkey chips and gravy and I know that's not traditional. I know that is not um, not standard Christmas fare, but it is their favourite meal. So maybe I might succumb and quit with the Brussels sprouts and all the trimmings, and I might just go for turkey, gravy and chips. Who knows? We also have chickens um, inside the building because, of course, there's been bird flu recently. So all free-range outdoor chickens now have to be housed. So you never know. I'm, I'm kind of just... Um, I'll just see see what happens at the moment. There's a, a forecast for snow this next week. So it looks like I'm going to have to be getting some supplies in as well. So, so I guess I'm not setting myself up for any one thing. I know the kids have made, um, made a Christmas pudding. I don't even know if it was stirrup Sunday, but they've already made the Christmas pudding. So, so that's always a, a good start. But, but yeah, I, I think um, this Christmas should have a certainly a different vibe. And I don't want, I don't want this Christmas because it's so different from last year, to become more stressful in that I feel that there's more to live up to. Because I think that's a grave danger this year, that people might spend too much, they might stress too much, because they're making up for what happened last year. And I'm going to say, lower the standards. It doesn't matter. As long as we're all happy, it doesn't matter. You don't have to follow the trend just because. I love that. And there's nothing wrong with chips. It is a tradition in our family every Boxing Day to have sausage, egg and chips every Boxing Day and also bank holidays. So I think go with the turkey and chips. No? Great idea. <laughs> and talking about sort of recipes, um, years ago I ran cooking events in schools and big sports halls. And I never forget an incident with um crumble when they were making crumble with the adults and the children it wasn't the children it was an adult who put basically a whole block of butter into the mixture and you can imagine then when the children went to rub it in the the mess that was everywhere I want to know have you had any mishaps in the kitchen perhaps when you were trying out these recipes and what happened where do you even want to start with mishaps in the kitchen (laughs) it's a permanent mishap in the kitchen you have to bear in mind number one With any recipe that I'm making, I usually adapt it along the way because I will set off with it and then realize that I haven't actually got all the right ingredients. So that was quite difficult with the book, actually, because I had a home economist who kept saying, but Amanda, how much of this do you need to put in a recipe? And I'd be just kind of like, oh, see what's in a packet. Tip it all in. And I can't, apparently I can't, I do vague cookery. Okay. I also work with a range oven. And you know about them? They don't even have a temperature dial on, okay? You just kind of hover your hand in the oven 
and see how hot it is. And it's always hotter at one side than the other side as well. So you spend your whole life turning things around. I've done anything and everything. I have forgotten about things and left them in the oven and they have been absolutely... I mean, a potato, a jacket potato is the standalone, I'm so stressed out, I've got so much going on, what's for tea? If you put a jacket potato in the oven, rub it with oil, sprinkle it with salt and put it in there, it is a thousand million times better than one out of a microwave. It's like simple fare, but done properly. And I'm a big believer in sometimes there are some things that you just shouldn't mess with, you know? And the humble jacket potato is a standout favorite at our house. But unfortunately, I have been known to throw them all in the oven, totally forget about them. And the next day, they're pretty much, well, they're black. And you, when you press them, they just sort of explode in soot because I forget about them. I've, oh, we've used the wrong flour. I'm a big believer in letting the children bake and cook because, because of the nature of our family and because there's a lot of us. I can't always be the person standing over the oven cooking. So in other words, I hand it over to them. And in order for them to learn how to cook, they have to make their mistakes. So, you know, there's been instances where they've made cake and used the wrong flour. Use plain flour instead of self-raising flour. The cake doesn't rise. There you go. That's a lesson learned. I feel like that is the best way to always make sure that you use the right flour by using the wrong flour and having the baking disaster. I love that idea of letting them make mistakes. Yeah, let them make the mistakes. I mean, you know, we have to bear in mind that it's highly unlikely that it's going to be like, um, they're going to be cooking with like a hundred pounds worth of langoustines. It's more likely that they're going to use, you know, the wrong kind of fat or they're going to use the wrong kind of flour or they're going to use a tablespoon instead of a teaspoon. You know, we've had too much salt in things because we don't really use salt at all in our cooking at all, you know. Um, and you kind of get to the point where where, where I, I like to give them free reign. I love them to make bread. Bread is one of those things that it's it's a magic. It almost feels like you're a bit of a scientist when you're bread making um because there are so many little things that can go wrong you can you can add the same ingredients and everything can be generally the same but one on one occasion you'll have success and another occasion it'll be a complete flop because it's all to do with sort of you know proving your bread and even the humidity all kinds of things sort of play a part in in those kind of recipes so uh, it's always exciting. It's always exciting. Love that. I think it's with bread, it's that nice sense of they've got to wait for it. You know, kids are so used to having mm. things all the time. They've got to have that patience, haven't they, while it proves and, mm. and waiting for it to happen and then discovering if it's risen. But I know mine put salt once in a cake instead of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the best thing, though. They put too much salt in and instead of sugar and never again will they make that mistake. You know, we've had burnt caramel. We've had... We've had wrong flour. We've had things not greased up. So you've made something amazing and, and you can't get it out of the tin. All the rest of it. But the bread thing, you always have to bake probably twice as much bread as you would normally have because once you've got warm bread, they eat even more of it, you see. But it is that kind of pleasure. It's that sort of um, idea of you having provided and made something and put it on the table. And the pride that the children have in doing that is is wonderful and it's a life lesson at the end of the day it's not just a game they're actually part of of um 
of the family unit. And if things are busy, I actually rely on them to be able to do that. So, so yeah, it's good. As a mum myself, your memoirs with the children and also the television programme, uh, the way that you interact with the kids, it is really inspiring. Like, where does it come from? Because you're so natural with them and you just seem to be able to let them breathe, which I think is the best thing for children. You know why, Claire? Because I'm a big kid at heart. If you can keep that, have I grown up? Maybe in some respects. But I'm absolutely intent on not losing that excitement, that thrill. For instance, this morning, um, be long before school, we were up at the crack of dawn because I say we had these sheep to go and pick up an outlying barn. And this outlying barn has, well, basically, there's a story from long ago because it used to be a pub. People used to live there. And of course, as per usual, in this neck of the woods, there's this wonderful story about somebody getting shot there and a skeleton being found. And it's all true, absolutely true. But it's it's one of those places that has this story attached to it. So I took Sydney with me. And of course, every time I go to this outlying barn, I have to tell him the same story again because they never tire of that kind of fairy story that actually can reach out and touch. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, he, he shot he shot the, the burglar who was trying to break into the barn because he, was, he heard him moving the slates and he had a shotgun under his bed and he pointed it up and he shot. And then the next day there was a bloody trail in the snow and a skeleton was found. So Sidney's like, you can see him, he's like wide-eyed. He's like, really? He said, can I go and have a look in the loft? And I was like, hmm, don't know about that because actually the stairwell has fallen down and although there's the fireplaces and everything it's actually really 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 unsafe to go up into the barn but I'll shove you up through the hole and then you can go into the top of the barn and then you can have a really good look yes there was various various potential basically that's why I've got all these bits in my hair because all this plaster work was dropping down and all the rest of it and I know there's a barn I lives in now you see but it's that kind of sensible parent must go, no, 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 no. We're not going up there because, you know, you might fall over, you might, it might, but it's kind of like you're sort of risk assessing all the time. What is Sydney going to get out of being shoved up through a small hole in his floorboards to see this place? Because he was like, where do you think the bed was? Where do you think he was sleeping at? Where do you think he fired the gun? Well, I'm just as excited as him. Only thing was, I couldn't fit through the hole in the floorboards. Too fat. But you see Sydney, because he's a bit smaller, shoved him up. So I was like, here, take my camera and you can take some pictures. So I've got some fabulous pictures of up in this loft where you really shouldn't go. But, you know, he came back down and a load of pigeon droppings dropped in my hair and all the rest of it, the usual. And then off we go. And what have we gained from that? Yeah, we wasted a good 10 or 15 minutes doing that. But it's that kind of, if you can keep that excitement going, and that's all in the line of duty, because at the end of the day, I was supposed to be picking up the sheep, which I did do. But if you can keep that sort of liveliness going on whilst you're doing things, that, that's, that's what it's all about. It's about, you know, what could be, what could be better than that? I mean, that was just, a, just an example. But, but yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I like to... I've lowered the standards, basically. That's my parenting tip. Lower the standards. 
you know, prior, prioritize what's important. I could have gone home and I could have hoovered and maybe put a load of washing in, but I'd rather be standing under a loft watching Sydney's feet and wondering whether he's going to fall through some floorboards because he's gained more from that. I definitely think there's that sense. I mean, I've been known to jump in the car before with the kids and chase a hot air balloon. See, you know, you've it. got to do these things. Of you have. It keeps you young at heart. Absolutely. Having um, a family and the children. Yeah, of course, you're supposed to be there in, in the capacity of being sort of the responsible one to a degree. It's about keeping yourself young at heart as well. I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel old. So, so I put that, I put that down to the fact that I'm always on the go. There's always things to do. And being part of a big family means that I can't do it all. So I spend a lot of time micromanaging. I have to hand over responsibility to the children as well, but I feel like that works in their favor because that gives them that sense of independence and that sense of pride that will carry them on through life, that ability to, I mean, yeah, of course we're, we're a tight knit family, but also incredibly independent with it. So instead of being tied to my apron strings, it's kind of the opposite. They have to do things for themselves. So that's good. It's that sense of independence, isn't it? And letting them grow Mm. and having given them the space to do that, really. And of course, there are lots of tales from family Christmases over the years um, and, you know, within your previous books, but also in this fifth book. And I want to know, can you read us just a little extract um, from the new book and we can snuggle down and listen to you? read perhaps about Christmas mornings. A white Christmas is not so much of an unusual occurrence in the highest reaches of Swaledale. Nevertheless, here at Ravenseat, one of Yorkshire's remotest outposts, we still get excited at the prospect of waking up on Christmas morning to a snowy scene. We can have a blast of winter at any time from late October, but normally the first frozen streaked smatterings of white appear on the bleakest exposed hillsides in November. Now the snow can fall heavily, no longer a meagre and short-lived dusting. As we look out towards the moor tops from the comparatively sheltered basin in which the farmstead sits, we can watch the weak, milky winter light fade as it's engulfed by graying clouds, snowstorms rolling in from the east. The quietness of the snow, the stillness and perfection in that early morning light, belies the trouble that it will inevitably cause. And that is why snow at Christmas time is such a delight. Only now do we get respite from the exterior pressures that still hover on the periphery. Already the world will have slowed in readiness for the festive period. No need to worry about travel, as the children are on their school holidays. The walkers and visitors have gone home, and the preparations that we have put in place mean that we have no need to go anywhere. Our acceptance of being snowed in at Christmas, with no one to please except ourselves, is profoundly uplifting. Weirdly, there is a sense of freedom from our entrapment. The work continues, but that's the joy, the focus in fact. We are ready to wrap ourselves up in the simple tasks of daily life. 
Oh, thank you. What lovely memories there, Amanda. I want to know, do you have plans for Christmas present this year? Um, I think that you've said before that you love James Harriet books. So I wondered if you'd be catching up with the new series of All Creatures Great and Small, whether you'll be reading and um, what your Christmas this year will feature. What my Christmas this year is going to feature? I'm getting the farrier out to do all the horses' hooves. It's going to feature a lot of riding. Do you know what? This is really bad. We haven't got a telly at the moment. It don't work. The telly actually doesn't work at all. It, and it hasn't worked for about three weeks. We had a load of power cuts. The power, but it didn't, the power, the electricity kept going on and off. It didn't just go off. It went on, off, on, off, on, off. And I think it's burnt something out somewhere either between the satellite dish. And I, anyway, no, I'm just really bothered. So I don't know whether to get a new television or not bother really. Because the, the kids don't care. So therefore, you know, they're busy and they've got stuff to do. So I'll kind of see how it goes. So it doesn't look like there's anything going to be on the TV, does it? So what we're going to do, I hope we're going to ride the horses. That's what we're going to do. We'll cook some stuff. They'll be messing about. They'll be doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, I mean, there, there, really, isn't, there really isn't a plan. If it's anything like a normal Christmas, they'll sit in, open a few presents, and then disappear off outside to find something else to do. Dig a hole, something like that. I don't know. Muck things out. Mess about. Last year, last year they really enjoyed Christmas because me, idiot, went to feed my sheep because everything still needs doing. I went to feed my sheep at, right at the top of the moor because it was a beautiful, frosty, glorious day. It was the first day that it started snowing, actually. It snowed from Christmas to the second week of February. We had snow every single day. Anyway, it started snowing and I was up there and because I was preoccupied with summer and not thinking straight, I actually drove into a bog. So I bogged, I bogged the four-wheel drive. So I had to do the old walk of shame and walk all the way back, about a mile and a half, back down into the farmyard to announce to everybody that although it was Christmas Day, they were unfortunately going to have to come with tow chains and a tractor and a shovel and get me out of a bog. And you know what? It was probably the best Christmas ever in far, as far as they were concerned because, number one, they could humiliate me and say what sort of driver would possibly do something as stupid as that. But, yeah, they were amused for a good few hours getting me out of the boggy place. Oh, there you go. Well, let's hope that this Christmas, Amanda, is less sticky and less stuck in the mud than last year's. I'm sure it will be. And talking about stories, you've written many books now, but do you have a book that perhaps you read by the fire or one that you read to the kids at Christmas time? Hmm. I don't think there's really a specific book for Christmas time. I mean, I'm, I'm, like I was just saying before, the children are always wanting to kind of hear stories from around here that what they actually really like is to hear stories from times past kind of like that folklore kind of which is more the spoken word rather than the written word so they like to to sort of I suppose reminisce it's not particularly stories about about us but you know from from a way back in the past I mean of course they love their bedtime stories and there are certain books that I've actually had to buy replacement books for I mean of course the god slinky malinky those sort of poetry poetry kind of books that sort of they have a bit of a rhythm with them they enjoy those kind of books and we're going on a bear hunt oh god I know that one like word for word oh and the gruffler 
Yes. They have their family favorites. But really speaking, when it comes to sitting down for a story, it usually veers off on a tangent and we end up talking about some story from a way back here. When you live at a place that's got such history, there is this kind of, um, I don't know, this sort of dialogue that is permanently going on no matter what you're doing, whereby although you're in the here and now, you've got you've got all this sort of history around you and the kids want to know. And of course, like anything, there's always a little bit of embellishment. And through lockdown with writing this book, I was doing a lot of research into, you know, sort of local history and times past. So I uncovered um, lots of new stories about what had been going on around here. So, you know, at the moment, they're quite like listening to the story about um, Mary Moore, the the pub landlady who lived in our farmhouse and keeled over and died in 1770. And, you, you know, the conversation is like, do you think she was pulling a pint? Do you think she was in the bar? You know, it's that kind of sort of, you know, it starts somewhere and then where does that story take you? And, of course, with doing the local history, we also found out that there was, um, we found some newspaper articles from 1880 that have a body being dug up right here in the field outside. And this body being dug up, this lady, and it being taken away to be washed and identified. And she's got long ginger hair and she's still got the remnants of the clothing on. And then strangely and weirdly, after they've washed her and had a good look at her and tried to decide who she is, they bring her back and bury her right here. So the kids are like, do you think that's why there's a ghost? Do you think it's haunted? Do you think? And it's, it's that. That's what they want to talk about. They'd rather talk about something that sort of is closer to home than sort of be taken on a fantasy adventure in a book. In in many respects, that's like me. I mean, I was always a reader, never a writer, but I always wanted to read factual. I didn't want to get immersed in a tale only to get to the end of it and think, well, that was an amazing literary journey, but it didn't happen. That's not for me. I know some people like like that kind of idea of sort of taking you to another place, another world. But for me, it was always it always had to be real. So so I guess maybe that's that's my influence on them. I think that's fascinating. I know my granddad grew up in Norfolk, and the tales there about the nuns at the nunnery yeah. haunting particular school lane in in near Marham, and it you know, it really does. I, my mum's the best storyteller. She's an ex-primary school teacher. And you just, even now my children say, granny, tell us that story again. Tell us about yeah. this. And it, it just really does capture you. That is, that is the best. I mean, you know, it, it just, cause, because it's, it's, it still feels so relevant because, because you're there. And I feel like that's, with these kind of stories and tales, because they aren't written down, because they're, they're spoken, they that that that's how they travel. So I I guess you know, hopefully in another generation, my kids will be telling telling somebody else. And in a way, that is why putting some of these stories and tales into the books feels like in a in a kind of a way, sort of jogging memory and sort of reminding reminding people. Well, there you go. It it's lovely to have that 
um, record, you know, that record, isn't it, where you've captured everything in mm. this book and that you can revisit and your children can revisit yeah. and, and you shared it, you know, with everybody that we can read about these things and, and the history of it is just fascinating. So please do keep discovering more things because we do want to hear about them. It is never ending. That's the one, the best thing about writing is it's almost like a bit of a honeypot because you, you write and it brings people in from the outside who read the book and maybe have little snippets. Sometimes I feel like all roads lead to Raven Seat because, you know, I've had people send me pictures and paintings and all kinds of things from all over the world. So I feel like it's a jigsaw that's being built all the time. It's exciting fascinating to have that connection with a place it just it really is I could listen to you all day talk about it thank you so much Amanda for being on today it's been a joy to have you thank you for inviting me it's been absolutely lovely talking to you thank you talking of Christmas books it's time for chapter three book post where our authors talk about their favorite Christmas reads Yes, my favourite Christmas book of all time is The Jolly Christmas Postman by Alan and Janet Allberg. Um, I have been reading that or had it have had it read to me since being too small to remember my age. Um, and that to me just sums up, it just is Christmas, that book to me, with the amazing kind of pop out um, fairy tale parts of it. And every time I open it, I'm just transported back to being a child and just so excited for Christmas and everything that comes with it. And as an adult, every year, I do try every year. I haven't probably done it every single year, but since I was about 18, I've read A Christmas Carol um, in the days leading up to Christmas because it only, you can read it in one sitting. It's only about 10, 20,000 words, I think. Um, and I absolutely love that. I find it really gets me in the mood and really just takes me back to that sort of child like place of looking forward to Christmas. I have a special Christmas Eve, Christmas Day book that I read every single year, and it is usually Sarah Morgan's latest Christmas book. I'm a huge fan of Sarah Morgan, and her Christmassy books are just so cozy and wonderfully festive and heartwarming that I just love curling up with them with a mug of hot chocolate under a blanket. I've actually been saving it for my holiday and it's been so hard to wait because I was very kindly sent an early copy of the book and I still haven't read it yet because I've been saving it and saving it. I'm so close now, I can almost do it. <laughs> I'm not sure that this is actually a Christmas book, but it's a snowy, wintry, middle of the forest kind of book and of course it's crime fiction and it's a bit spooky but it's very atmospheric and it's it's the Will Dean books the first one is called Dark Pines and I would start with that and and it is it is in midwinter in the snow in the forest and he's created a fabulous central character called Tuva Moodison it's set in Sweden and she's a journalist on a local newspaper but she's also deaf, and that gives an extra frisson to the to the action because she struggles to hear, uh, but she can also lip read. So she finds her way into investigations in ways that other people might not. I think it is The Twelve Days of Christmas by Tricia Ashley. 
My favourite Christmas book every single year is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. It's a firmly fixed tradition in my seasonal calendar and I pick it up on December the 1st and read the whole thing and I will quite often go back and read it again the weekend that I put the Christmas decorations up Um, and I've got paperback copies of that and I've got hardback copies and I've also got it on my e-reader so it doesn't matter where I am on December the 1st I can always get hold of it. Um, normally I'm quite, it's quite hard for me to think of a favourite book, but at Christmas, actually I would pick a cookery, well, it's sort of a cookery book, is Nigel Slater's The Christmas Chronicles. Um, and so it's full of beautiful photographs and lovely, um, recipes, but it's also, um, so much more than that because it's a real sort of homage to winter really talking about the season. So I absolutely love that book. That would be my favourite. Well, we have a family tradition, which is that on Christmas Eve, we always do the night before Christmas as a kind of family reading. The little ones are in their pajamas and we all do it. And every year, somebody else, I've got five children, so we sort of share out the honours of who's going to read the poem. And over time, I've got different editions of it. There's an amazing pop-up version of the night before Christmas. And so we read that every Christmas. It's a joy. Thanks so much to Stacey Halls, Maria Kuzner, Anne Cleese, Kathy Bramley, Heidi Swain, Sarah Morgan and Sophie Kinsella for those excellent Christmas book recommendations. What a lovely time we've had in the very packed My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop. Spread a bit of Christmas cheer and reminisce with a warm glow. A massive thanks to all our guests on our Christmas special, M.A. Kuznia, Anton de Beck and the lovely Amanda Owen. Not to mention all of our lovely authors from Series 1. A very merry and magical Christmas from myself, Claire Gill and all of the My Weekly team. Before you dive into that box of chocolates or mulled wine, our Series 1 authors have got one more thing to say. Take it away. This is Heidi Swain and I'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a happy, safe and healthy New Year. Hello, this is Cathy Bramley wishing all the readers and listeners of My Weekly a very happy Christmas. This is Stacey Halls, author of Mrs. England. I just wanted to wish everyone a very happy Christmas and an even happier New Year and hope that 2022 brings you as much joy as you could imagine. This is Anne Cleave saying happy Christmas to all my weekly listeners and have a wonderful New Year. I'm Sarah Morgan and I'd like to wish all of my weekly readers a happy Christmas and a very happy New Year. A very happy Christmas to all all the my weekly readers and if you celebrate it if you don't celebrate it a very happy and merry whatever it is that you celebrate at this time of the year uh, my name is amanda owen also known as the yorkshire shepherdess i've also been on the tv program uh, yorkshire farm i'm shepherdess sherpa and shoveler of the proverbial and i'm wishing you all a very happy christmas so thank you for tuning in and listening to my dulcet tones to all the My Weekly readers, it's Anton Tebeck here, and I just want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. Time at My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop has come to an end for this episode. Join us next time for more big name authors, stories, and extracts read just for you, and our favourite book recommendations landing wherever you are. Whether you're out with the dogs, in a pair of sturdy walking shoes, heading into work or cosied up at home in your comfiest slippers. 
If you love fiction, cooking and interviews with your favourite celebrities, then you'll love My Weekly. And as a listener to The Magical Flying Bookshop, you can try 13 issues of the print or digital magazine for just £6. Head to myweekly.co.uk forward slash podcasts or call 0800 318 846 and quote the offer code MWPOD. That's MWPOD to save more than 60% on the cover price. Check the episode notes for details and terms. That's all for now. Pick up your copy of My Weekly and escape with our fiction stories. And until you pop into the bookshop again, have a wonderful booktastic week. I'm Claire Gill and this was My Weekly's Magical Flying Bookshop, sponsored by Pavers, your perfect style. Perfect style.